Welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. Today's episode is going to be on old-fashioned traditional jam making part one. So we're going to be talking about and going through how to make jams and jellies the old-fashioned way without loads of sugar, without using store-bought pectin, and as the harvest comes on seasonally. So we'll be seasonally going through the fruits as they ripen. And I will be sharing my favorite tried and true recipes with tips and troubleshooting help too for making homemade jams and jellies. So I was so excited. We had our first reader survey with you guys and I was overwhelmed with all of the responses we got in a good way. I was really excited and many, many of you said that you wanted to be able to put up more of your own food at home and that you were learning how to can or just beginning to can and that kind of a thing. And so you were wanting to to go through that. And so this is a series that we're going to begin that's going to walk you through how exactly how we put up all our jam and jelly throughout the year as it comes on and without using store-bought pectin. So homemade jams and jellies have been a way to preserve fruits at home for year-long use for hundreds of years. They allow us to experience the delicious taste of strawberries on the frigid days of January, the zest of blueberries and the soggy days of spring, and they can be used not just on toast, but they can be used in sauces, in marinades, in cakes, and spread on a number of things. Um, Jam, some of the more tart jam, like raspberry jam, if you have that with cheese and on crackers, is a great appetizer. And jams and jellies are found in most lunch boxes still today, I would say. And I have to confess, sometimes I'm guilty of just eating a bite of jam by the spoonful. <laughs> but because we're using lower sugar recipes, it's not quite as bad. But I really do love jams and jellies. So typical jam and jelly recipes that you're going to come across in a lot of books um, and using, especially if you've been used to using commercial pectin or you look at the commercial pectin in their recipes, they use just as much, if not more, sugar than fruit. And the reason for this is because high amounts of sugar are usually required for the set of jams and jellies when you use commercial pectin. So you don't, but you don't have to use expensive store pectin or bucket loads of sugar to have delicious homemade jams and jellies because let's face it, up until not very long ago, buying store-bought, buying pectin at the store to make jam and jelly wasn't something that the pioneers did. It wasn't available and it wasn't made. And so I really like to look back you'll notice if you've been on my website or listened to any of the podcasts before is I really like to visit old fashioned traditional skills. And my grandmother made all of her homemade jams and jellies without store-bought pectin. I don't think that she ever purchased store-bought pectin. And so she taught my mom how to make some different recipes that way. And so I've been pulling out a lot of those older cookbooks and going through them and looking and making my own jams and jelly that way now too for about two, no, three years now. Um, most of my jam and jelly has been made without store-bought pectin. And, but I will, if you do want to use store-bought pectin, and we'll kind of go over that a little bit further on in the podcast, um, the one, the only one that I do use if I'm going to be using store-bought pectin and when and why. So when you're looking through a lot of canning books and homemade jam and jelly recipes, as I found a lot of them are really complicated. Some of them require three days to prepare, uh, especially if they're using cheesecloth and they're letting it drain for a long period of time, or they contain really exotic kind of expensive ingredients that if I even knew what they were, I didn't have any idea where to find them or purchase them. So I just use traditional homemade jam and jelly 
recipes that have been passed down for generations. They don't contain high fructose corn syrup or food dye, which if you look at the jams and jellies on the store's shelves, a lot of them have high fructose corn syrup in it or they use food dye. And then some jams and jelly recipes that you're going to come across online aren't necessarily safe for home canning. So we're going to talk safety rules here for a minute. I'm not one that always follows the rules, but when it comes to canning, I don't take any chances. I follow the recommended guidelines by the USDA for home canning, and I do my best to stay up to date. I know a lot of older canning books and recipes don't follow these, but for me personally, I'm not willing to risk it, so I will update recipes or look at the guidelines to make sure that they are safe. And I have a link in today's show notes for you in the transcript to the USDA Complete Guide to Home Canning for your own reference. So you can look things up there and reference some different recipes and things that you have or if you're ever in question on your own. And so for anything that we're talking about here on the podcast today, go to melissaknorris.com, click on the podcast button, and this is episode number 57. And it's the old-fashioned traditional jam making part one. So you'll be able to get full transcripts, um, any of the resources that, that I'm talking about, and the links, all there at just a little low click of the button. So jams and jellies can be safely canned via the water bath canning method, which is immersing your jars of food in boiling water for a specified amount of time. And only high acidic foods can be safely canned with the water bath method. So this includes jams, jellies, syrups, marmalades, chutneys, pickled foods, and salsas. But only salsa recipes that are specific for canning because they have to have the right ratio and a proper amount of acidity in the recipe to make it shelf stable for canning. So only follow salsa recipes and we'll talk about that later in future episodes as we get into the salsa and tomato season. Um, tomato products can also be canned with the water bath canning as long as you add some acid in the form of either concentrated lemon juice to the jar or vinegar. Now, jams and jellies are made with fruit, which is acidic, with the exception of bananas. Bananas aren't acidic enough on their own to make into a jam or jelly to can. You occasionally will see some combination recipes that have bananas in them, but unless they're from a trusted source, I would use care in canning those. Um, the ball book, complete book of home canning does have a recipe in it that uses some bananas in it. And theirs has been specifically tested to make sure that it is acidic enough to make it shelf stable. So if it's from an up-to-date canning book like that, then I would feel safe using it. But if it's just online, I would definitely double check that. And if you're ever in doubt on the safety of a jam or, jello re- jam or jelly recipe for home canning, you can always freeze the product or store it in the fridge for a few weeks as you eat it up. So usually jam and jelly recipes show their yield in four or eight ounce jelly jar sizes, hence the name, right? Yeah. So you can also put them in pint sizes jars, depending upon the size of your family and how much jam or jelly you use. I prefer to mainly use the jelly jar sizes. And the reason for that is because if I pop open a jam or jelly and we don't eat as much of it as quickly as I think we're going to, I hate to waste food or throw it out, especially something that I have put the work into to grow and can myself. And I'm sure I am not the only one out there that feels that way. So I found that if I do it in the jelly jar, we usually go through it fast enough that it doesn't get any mold on it because once it grows mold on it, I know a lot of times people used to, um, actually a lot, a while, even up until probably fairly recently, and some of you might still, a lot of people would seal their homemade jams and jellies with a layer of wax instead of the canning 
lid and that's how that they would seal it which is not really a recommended practice anymore because a lot of times you'd break that wax seal and you would see on the top layer that some mold had started to grow and that's because um, air obviously was getting to it and so a lot of times they would scrape that layer of mold off and then go ahead and still eat the jar but with more modern testing and that kind of thing they found that there are still mold spores in it even if you have scraped off the top layer and it's generally not considered safe so everybody has to use their own judgment in their kitchen and in their canning practices so for us I prefer to just use the jelly size jar because we're going to go through it and I don't have any mold so then I don't have to worry about tossing it out or making that decision on whether it's safe or not so we're going to talk about acid and a food must have a pH level of 4.6 or lower to be considered safe enough for water bath canning. So most fruits are acidic and safe for canning with the exception of bananas, like I said, and also with the exception of figs, melons, dates, and papayas. So on their own, they are not acidic enough to can. For a full list of foods and their pH level, you can view a list that the FDA has compiled for people to let them know. And the link for that is in the show notes that I mentioned earlier. And so for if you're new to jam or jelly making, you might be kind of confused. Sometimes it seems that the term jam and jelly is used um, the same. But jam, technically jam contains the pieces of the whole fruit. And those pieces of the fruit are in the finished product. Whereas jelly is just made from the juice of fruit. So you won't get any little chunks or bits of the fruit in jelly. It's just from the juice. So it's usually more clear than the jam. And it's usually a personal preference. I like to use jam on berries that have small seeds. So if it's strawberries, I always make strawberry jam, blueberries, blueberry jam. With raspberries, I kind of do a combination. I have my great grandmother's sieve and its holes are a little bit larger. And so the very, very small raspberry seeds will go through it, but it catches all of the large ones. So I kind of call my raspberry what I make jamly because it's half jelly and half jam. So, but for blackberries, anything that has the really large seeds in it, I usually prefer to make jelly out of because I don't like the really large seeds that get stuck in your teeth. And some people, if they have digestion issues, the seeds can really bother them. Now, equipment that you need to make homemade jam and jelly making, um, one, and this might seem obvious to some of you, but is canning jars. And like we said, most recipes call for the six ounce jelly jars or pint sized jars. But when you are canning, it's advised to only use jars that are specified for canning. And that's just to make sure that they hold up to the heat changes involved in canning. You're putting hot food into jars. You're putting it in really hot water and then you're taking it back out. And so if you're, if it's just a old, you know, a glass jar, say you bought some regular salsa from the store that you didn't make yourself and you have to save this glass jar. Now that's fine to use for leftovers or other things. It's not fine to use for canning because you don't want to go through all that work and then have these big old cracks in these jars and lose all of it. Like I said, I prefer the eight ounce jelly jar size myself for making jam and jelly. And then with lids, you're going to, there's either regular canning lids, which I have used for years and they now um, look on the label. Most of them are all now BPA-free, which is fabulous. But I've also started using the reusable Tatler lids, and both work e- well. If you're used to reg- using the regular canning lids, the Tatler lids are slightly different, but they're the only lid that is actually safe to reuse in canning. And I've been using them going on two years now, and I really like them, and I plan on increasing them every year, the amount that I have. 
And so I have a full on review. If you've not ever heard of the Tatler lids or you're kind of wondering how they are to use, what makes them a little bit different and all of that, I have a full on review of the reusable Tatler lids that when I purchased them and how I did it and what I thought of them. And there's also some great comments. So you can go in and look at that too on people who've been using them either longer than me and what they thought of them. So I love that about comments when you go somewhere and there's all the comments down at the bottom that tell you even more. So that one has some great comments for you to look at. And so equipment needed, again, we're going to need a water bath canner, which you can just use a really large stock pot as long as you have a rack or something that will lift your jars up off the bottom so that the boiling water can circulate all the way around the jar. So the most common is the graniteware canners, and but a lot of people prefer the stainless steel water bath canners because they don't rust out. Um, I have an old graniteware one, and it is getting some rust on it, though it's still very usable. When it's time to replace that, I'm definitely going to look at the stainless steel water ones. But both are fine choices, and they're going to get the job done. The graniteware water bath canners are definitely the more economical choice. And the stainless steel water bath canners are going to hold up for years to come. And then you can still also use them as a really large sturdy stock pot as well. And then the other thing that I really want to talk about that I love is a, a sieve. So a sieve, if you're not sure what that is, is it has small holes in it and it's shaped conically and it sits in a stand and it has a wooden pestle. And so it allows you to crush and push your foods, especially if they have skins or seeds on them, through it. And so the seeds and the skin say, stay inside the sieve while the pulp and the juice that goes all the way through it. So a sieve is what I use for applesauce when I do tomato sauce and when I make jellies with fruits like raspberries and blackberries, like I said. And I have my great grandmother's and it is still in perfect working shape. So it... And I, I love that it's hers. You can, anyways, I get a little sentimental about that. Um, I prefer using a sieve personally to a food mill or cheesecloth. I find it faster and more efficient. It might be because I bought a used food mill at a garage sale. And, and then the cheesecloth is something that you have to keep rebuying or rewashing. I've just really found the sieve to be much, much faster. I've tried all three and I prefer the sieve. It's just my go-to. It's what I constantly go back to and just find myself grabbing and using. And then there's another couple items if you're getting into jam and jelly making. These are optional. You do not have to have them by any means. But I really highly recommend, especially if you think you're going to be doing a lot of making your own homemade jelly or homemade juice. So you can make and can your own homemade juice from fruits too. And that is a stainless steel steam juicer. And I bought mine, I think, almost three years ago now. So if you've ever went through the process of cooking fruit, and then hanging it in the cheesecloth to extract the juice for jelly or just for drinking, then you know how long and arduous that the process can be. So the stainless steel steam juicer, it knocks hours and tons of hands-on time off. So you simply, you fill the bottom, it, it has three compartments and then kind of stack on, on top of each other. And so you fill the bottom part with water and then you place the middle section and this is what collects the juice in place on top of the water. And then there's a steam rack that goes on the very top. And this is what you put your fruit in. And then, of course, you put the lid on. And it comes with, and I linked to the one that I specifically use and purchased myself. And it has a guide in it that tells you how long to steam each kind of foods. And you can do vegetables in it as well, but specifically for the fruit. And so you bring the water to a boil and you allow it to steam for the time it says. And then there's this little surgical tubing and it lets all the juice drain out. And then I put the tube into one of my large glass Pyrex measuring cups because it's going to be hot coming out. 
And so it's just, it's a, it's a thing of beauty. I tell you what, it allows you to distract the juice for your jelly making. It's kind of like having a maid because you just put it on and then when you come back and the time's up, then all the juice is just drained out. And then you can, you have the pulp and the skins and stuff and you can put those in a compost pile. You can feed them to your chickens or your pigs, whatever you have, you know, livestock wise. And it's just fabulous. And so I did that. I've used it. Um, I really liked it when I was doing grape. We have grape arbor and I have two kinds of grapes and one is a great table grape. It's seedless and it's really sweet. The other grape I think is technically a wine grape. And it has really large seeds in it. And even after it goes through the first frost, it doesn't ever get really sweet. So that's what I use when I'm making my jams and my jelly, or not, excuse me, not jam, but jelly because I don't want the seeds in it. And so this steam juicer has been fabulous because I just throw all the grapes in there. I don't even take them off the stem, you guys. <laughs> I just throw them all on the pot. I do rinse them, throw them all on the pot, and then I just let it steam and then all the juices come out and then I just throw the pulp and the sticks away. So I really love it. So if you do a lot of that kind of thing, you definitely want to check that out. So we're going to get into our natural pectin sources for homemade jams and jellies. So it's the combination of pectin and sugar along with acid that gives jams and jellies its set or its firmness. So pectin is found in fruits and it's higher in some fruits than others. Fruits that are naturally high in pectin are apples, crab apples, grapes, quince, currants, lemons, and limes. And underripe fruit has a higher level of pectin as well. So when you're picking or selecting your fruit for jams, it's best if you use approximately a quarter of slightly underripe fruit for a better set. So if you're, you know, picking it at a farmer's market or you pick, which I always prefer so then I know exactly what kind of berries and stuff I'm getting and I get to choose that go into it. Don't worry if some of them aren't quite all the way ripe. It's going to give you a better set on your jam and jelly. So as I mentioned before, pectin is found naturally in most fruits. And many people are familiar with using the store-bought pectin to make their jams and jellies. And the regular boxes of powdered pectin or pouches of liquid pectin found on most grocery store shelves require large amounts of sugar to get the set they also have other added ingredients that most likely contain GMO ingredients because they're from known GMO crops. And they're kind of expensive too. I mean, you know, you're adding your sugar and if you didn't grow the berries yourself and you're having to purchase them, then the store-bought pectin just adds another cost into it. So the pioneers made all their jams and jellies without neat little boxes and envelopes of pectin. They used natural sources of pectin. And I just firmly believe that sometimes the old-fashioned ways are just better. And so we listed the fruits that contain naturally high level of pectin. And so with the apples, your tart or green apples have a higher level of pectin and especially crab apples. Crab apples have a a pretty large level of pectin in them as well. And the pectin is usually found in the skin. So it's the skin of the apples usually has quite a bit of it in it or the rind if we're talking about citrus. So your currants um, and grapes, lemons and limes, and the rinds on those actually contain the most of the pectin. And then the juices, the acid part also helps because it takes all three ingredients to get this set when you're making homemade jam and jelly. So jams are the easiest to make the natural pectin sources with because they keep the skin on the product. Like I mentioned, which is the higher concentration of pectin is found. And I've successful, but I've successfully made jelly without store-bought pectin as well. If you want the reassurance of, of a set with a store-bought pectin, and one of the reasons that some people really like to use store-bought pectin is because you don't have to cook it as long and they prefer not to cook it as long. So it's totally a personal choice up to you. 
But if I do use a store-bought pectin, the one that I have found and I adore and the only one that I use is pominous pectin. It's a truly a natural pectin that's made from citrus and it uses calcium water instead of sugar for the set. And so you don't have to it, and it, also in the directions in the box, which is fabulous, it has little charts that you can, it tells you how much honey, if you want to use honey instead of sugar, and it just has some great references in there as well. So I use the pominous pectin for a few of my savory or my non-fruit variety jellies. So I do a red pepper garlic jelly that I use the pominous pectin on to get this set on. So if you, you like to do those, um, you know, like mint jellies, those kinds of things that don't have the fruit in it to help you give the pectin, then the pominous pectin is definitely the way that I go with those. So if you're ready to get your jam on, make sure that you subscribe to get all of my recipes, podcast delivered straight to your inbox. And I'm going to be sharing, I'm compiling this right now. So it's going to be ready super soon, I promise. But I'm going to be sharing and it's going to be a free download just for my new people who are subscribed to my list and it's of my reader favorite jam and jelly recipes. And so it's going to be in an ebook and it's going to be from, I requested that my readers send in their favorite jam and jelly recipes. And so I'm going to put my favorites in there along with those. And it's just going to be a free ebook for people. So to get first dibs and to get that as soon as it's ready in your hot little hands or your email box, you can sign up and just go to melissacanoris.com to do that. You can click on the freebies button and it'll take you to there. And so I also just wanted to tell you that I have the free Ultimate Home Food Preservation Guide, which has, at this point, I think almost 130 resources to help you preserve your food safely at home, including five of my favorite old-fashioned traditional recipes that make homemade jam with low sugar and without store-bought pectin. So I have a strawberry one. I've got cherry. I've got grape, blueberry, and doing this off the top of my head, apple. (laughs) So, and then there's many, many more, but those are just the ones. So depending on where you are seasonally, if your fruit's already coming on, our strawberries next week, I'm going to pick strawberries at a U-Pick farm because we don't have enough strawberries on our farm to make all of my jam and jelly. So we're just getting in to the jam season here. So if you're ahead of me with your climate and weather-wise, you can grab all of those by signing up. So now we're on to the verse of the week. And I wanted to thank all of you who commented on the survey and who emailed in and said that you appreciate this part. Because sometimes it's, you know, when you're doing a podcast, you're essentially talking to yourself. In fact, I'm sitting on the floor of my bathroom because it has good acoustics. (laughs) And I record this talking to my computer screen. So I love to get reader feedback via, via comments or email and with the survey. And it was just so nice to know that you guys really do... I just was overwhelmed with all of the stories that you shared with me. And it was so wonderful to get to know some of you. And it was so inspiring to see and hear where you're coming from and what you're doing. And so I just wanted to thank everybody that responded. And a lot of you said that you really do like the verse of the week, which just thrills me because I know that it's not technically pioneering self-sufficiency homesteading, though it is to me because I don't think I could do any of this without, I know that I couldn't do anything without my faith um, in Jesus. So I was really touched that so many of you specifically said that you like that part. So the verse that I want to share this week is in Galatians and it's Galatians 6, 9. And it says, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time. We will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I just grow weary. I get bone 
tired, I'm exhausted, and I wonder if anything that I'm doing is making a difference and if I should just give it all up. And I know that that's not true, but sometimes we have those moments where we are filled with self-doubt and we're just not sure. And, you know, I've struggled with that on and off. But I love this verse because it tells us at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we just don't give up. And as I was so in the garden this past weekend and working out there and putting all the seeds and the plants in, you know, you, you plant those little seeds in the ground and you sow them. And we're not sure you know, we're not guaranteed that they're all going to come up. Hopefully they all germinate. But it really reminded me is sometimes you plant those seeds and there's been where I've soaked all of the seeds. They were all saved from my garden the same way. And I know how many I've planted and where they're at. And I'll go out and almost all the seeds are up. So like, for instance, I went out to where we planted pumpkins and I knew I'd planted five seeds per hill, which I usually thin it down to three. And I was looking and there was three hills and nothing had came up, not a seed. And I'm like, Oh goodness. And so I went back in and I soaked some more seed overnight and I went out the next morning and lo and behold, if there wasn't pumpkin plants that had sprouted and all popped up overnight. Now, mind you, they'd all been planted at the same time and all the other hills, those seeds had came up and broken through the surface about for four days. So there was quite a difference in time. And so it just reminded me that we don't always know when the things are going to happen, when we're going to reap that harvest. So even if you're in a spot where it doesn't look like it, don't give up. Don't grow weary of doing good because at the proper time, the harvest will happen. So I hope that gives you some encouragement for this week. Thank you so much for listening.